Welcome to Harvest Mission Community Church. You are listening to one of our sermons. Please go ahead and turn to Jonah chapter 3. We're going to just jump right into it. Uh, For the last several weeks, we've been uh, mentioning uh, this phrase for the summer that we're going to focus in on. And I want to see if you guys remember. What is that phrase again? Okay. See, I, I know when there's passion in something. I, I, I know when people are half-hearted when I are, okay? So can we just for a moment say it with a little bit more passion, all right? So t- before we do, turn to somebody next to you and say, please say it with some passion, all right? Go ahead and let them know, all right? Okay, with that passion, let's go ahead and say it. This summer, we're going to close out. We're going to focus in on what? Amen and Amen. And for these three months, during the summer, from June all the way through August, we're going to be focusing in on that target, which is discipleship. It's about relationships. And we're going to focus in on our relationship with God, our relationship with others, our relationship with accountability, and our relationship with the laws. We have about two more weeks as we finish off in the book of Jonah. And then we're going to do some character studies throughout the summer as we talk about different relationships with other people. One of the things I want to focus in on is about friendship, about how to have good relationships and good friendships and so that we can build this community, and especially in our church. So we're going to be talking about all those different things. And then one of the things that, uh, if you remember, as we started off the book of Jonah, I hope it's been helpful for you. Some of you have only heard of the story, but you've never really studied it. And I hope that as we're studying it, not only on Sunday, but also during life group, that it gives you more insights into the Word of God. Uh, one of the things I was sharing with some people is that I, I was always amazed that this Bible can actually speak. And whenever it says the living word, sometimes I will scratch my head because I'm one of those guys, once I finish a book, I don't touch it again. And so I'm like, I finished the whole Bible. I was asking my disciples, what do I do now? And they go, read it again. I'm like, what? I, I just read this book. And the more I began to read it, I began to understand, oh, why is a book like no other? Like many of you can read, I don't know, Harry Potter's book or Lord of the Rings book, and some of you enjoy reading it again. Uh, For me, I like to watch it again. And so, you know, as we read it again, maybe there's different insights that you get. But one of the things about the Bible is that it says it's God's living word. And that as we grow over a period of time, that word speaks to us differently. And the illustration I give is I don't know how many times I've read different passages about God being the father. And, you know, it, it speaks to you, it's touching. But then as I became a father, now when I read those portions where it talks about God the Father, it had a whole new meaning. This is the reason why the Bible is powerful. This is the reason why the Bible is a living word, that it speaks to us right where we are at the moment that we're at, the things that we struggle with. And so as you're studying the book of Jonah, I hope that it's been encouraging. The first week we talked about how God is persistent in finding a way He's finding a way to find you. He's he's finding a way to get you back to the place that he wants you to be. And so that even though we are constantly running away, uh, that's our story. That's our lives. We're running away from God, running away from responsibility, running away from the things that he wants us to do. But God is always finding a way. Last week, we talked about how God repeatedly expels the idols in our hearts so that our relationship with him can restart that he wants us to restart this relationship with him. And we talked a little bit about repentance, but I want to zoom in on that today because as we go into chapter 3, we see some aspects of repentance, and that will lead us to chapter 4 next week as we close out the book of Jonah. So today, I want to talk about chapter 3, and I think it's going to have some significance for all of us here and some lessons for us to remember. And I wanted to start off with a question as, why is it so hard for many of us, if not all, to confess and to repent of our sins, especially when you know what we are doing or what we have done is wrong. I want you to think about that for a moment. Why is it difficult and why is it hard for many of us to repent or confess our sins when we know what we did or what we are doing is wrong? I think for many of us, we know exactly because it's our desire for self-preservation. 
that, that desire is very strong. We live in a culture here in Asia. It's about shame. It's about guilt. And there are certain things that you want to present yourself in front of people, that you have your life together. A lot of it is based on your identity. It's very insecure because your whole identity has been based on grades, your success, and your family, and what they do, what you have, what you don't have. And therefore, there's a lot of opportunities for you to save face or you want to save face. So I think this is one of the major reasons why we don't want to repent or confess because it's about self preservation. And I think there's something that when we think about the shame and guilt, there's something about that aspect that we learn at a very young age. I mean, I would go as far as to say, as soon as you're able to even stand or to take some steps, you learn it very quickly from your parents or your extended family around you. And that's why it manifests into lying. It then manifests into a lack of integrity. And a lot of times we think about this, like, well, pastor, like a white lie is not that bad, you know? Yeah, you don't want to say, yeah, how do I look? You look ugly. I mean, you're going to ruin every single relationship in your life. Or someone cooks something for me, like, how is it? It tastes horrible. This is the worst soup I had in my whole life, right? Like, even though you're honest, it's not very helpful relationally. So, pastor, what's wrong with maybe telling some little white lies and just kind of making them feel better and different things like that? Well, like I said, as we get older, our lying becomes a little bit more intricate. The way we lie, how we lie. And to what degree and to what extent we lie, it gets very, very intricate. Because once again, that desire and that drive to self-preserve is very strong. I want to show you this quick video. It was an experiment that was done. If some of you remember the experiment, the marshmallow experiment. So after that kind of blew up and it was really popular, they, some people then took that idea and said, well, what would it be like if we actually filmed these kids at different ages, like six, seven, eight, and took them and put them in a room and gave them a cake and said, do not eat the cake. And then afterwards, come in and see if they ate the cake because they had cameras everywhere because they didn't know, the kids didn't know, and to see if they would lie or not. Now, the question is, who's that person checking out? It's an ex, I think, uh, a federal agent. It's a CIA guy who's good at, like, terror or counterterrorism, you know. We're talking about, like, counter, like, spying. He knows when people are lying. So they hired this guy to come and to just talk to the kids. I mean, it's not like a 30-year-old who's going to murder you, but it's a kid. And so it's amazing as he's kind of walking through this whole process just to see the kids' response. And at the, somewhere towards the middle end, you're going to be able to guess, in your mind, I guess, you can't say it out loud, but just in your mind, try to guess out of these four kids which one is lying. I thought it was very interesting and very telling. So let's watch this together. I don't know if you guessed it correctly, but if you haven't noticed, as all of us hopefully are more observant, they were all guys who lied. <laughs> Maybe there's a problem in this world because it leads us back to the men. <laughs> As you know, this is human nature. To lie, to put up a front, to hide, to make excuses, not to take responsibility. This is just who we are. It's built in us, in our depravity as we were born. It's also reinforced in us through consequences and punishment that you received as a little child. Different things, whether it's media or different situations that you've seen in other people. And so we are hardwired, if you will, to try to avoid any situation that will expose your heart. And as you think about how often that kind of mindset hinders us in our relationship with God, I'm wondering, what are some of those things for you? It might not be lying. It might be something else. And oftentimes, what we don't think about is our relationship with God. I think in many ways, that shows how patient He is, how loving He is, how gracious He is, 
Because if he wanted to, he could expose you right now. But he's giving us an opportunity to repent. Giving us an opportunity to confess our sins. Not only to him, because he already knows. So he doesn't need it from us in that sense. He already knows. But he wants it from us because it's good for us. To be able to even confess and repent in front of other people. People that you trust. People that you know that love you and want the best for you. If you remember, one of the things that we are trying to accomplish is to move people along the grid. We've been talking about this. Because if discipleship is about relationships, and we're trying to help people to grow in their relationship with God and others and accountability and with the laws, then we're trying to help you guys to move from one point to another, every single one of us. And if you remember here on this grid, one of the things that we talk about is that the, the grid stands for, G stands for the God-seeking pre-Christian. There are some of you who are not believers in Jesus Christ yet. And in fact, I'm always thrilled when I have people who don't know Jesus yet as a personal Lord and Savior, and they come out either to life group or to Sunday, and you watch it online because you're hungry for truth. And maybe there's something in Scripture, in the Bible, that's speaking to you. You sense something, you feel something that you can't fully explain. That's the work of God in your life. There are some of us who are the R, which is the recognized disciple, that you are content with just being a Christian. You might have been a Christian ever since you were a young child when you went to Sunday school. Some of you just been a Christian just recently. Maybe you rededicated your life to Christ, just coming to college and being part of our church. But looking at your life, you're no different from the way you were before. In fact, I would take one step further to offend you and say this. I don't think some of you are any different from pre-Christians. The way you live your life, the things that you invest in, the things that you aspire for, those are inconsistent with someone who understands the gospel message and lives for Jesus Christ. Many of us, I believe, are here. We're content with just knowing that we, Jesus died for us, that if we were to die, we'll go to heaven, but pretty much we're still controlling the car. We're the driver in that driver's seat doing what we want to do. And I'll sprinkle in there once in a while doing your soul because your accountability partner is on your case. And there's another good handful of you, uh, a good chunk of you who are in the invested disciple, that you've experienced the gospel, that something changed within your heart. It was a supernatural work. And through that work of the Holy Spirit, now you're saying, I am grateful for all that God has done. I'm grateful for the, the cross. And so now in a response to that gratefulness and thankfulness, you want to serve him, you want to live for him. That's why you're investing some of your time. You're investing some of your resources. You're investing your talents so that you could bless other people. And many of us in our church are here and we're excited that you're growing. And then we see a small handful of people who are at the D. They're disciple-making disciples, that they know how to make a disciple, that they're pouring in and investing in the next generation. It's not just about hanging out. It's not just about having good conversations, but it's really learning how to disciple them. And as they say, as Paul was saying to the Corinthians, follow me as I follow Christ. By getting into my life and me getting into your life, you're going to be able to see Jesus Christ and whom you will emulate and become more like him. And so we're trying to move everyone along because it's going to take some investment. And what we have to center our life around is the gospel. That's why it's the gospel acceleration, that when you know the gospel, and the work of the gospel does something powerful, accelerates that understanding of who you are, who God is in your life. And that's the thing that centers us, brings us to the core as we're growing along the grid. Now, why is all this important? I think one of the biggest factors that slow us down from growing as a disciple is our lack of repentance, or if you will, our lack of understanding what repentance is and then responding to God. It literally is trying to go through mud and you cannot move very fast. And that's why some of you have been stuck for months, years. And I'm praying that this morning, you have a better understanding about repentance and what that means for us in our lives. Because I would say, by and large, majority of us have a negative view of repentance. 
I'm hoping that you'll see why it's important, the process in which we go through it, and then even as we're trying to go through the grid, that we'll be able to see that in order to get to these next levels, it will require some level of repentance. I like what Oswald Chambers said in his book, My Utmost for His Highest. He writes this, Repentance always brings a man or a woman to this point. I have sinned. The surest sign that God is at work is when a person, man or woman, says that and means it. Anything less than this is remorse for having made blunders, the reflux action of disgust at himself. Let me kind of retranslate this in a way that you can understand. If you don't have a true understanding of repentance, what it's going to be is you're just going to feel bad about the things that you see about your life, and you're going to be disgusted by it. But after a while, you're going to be okay with it. So think about the first time when you felt this, this, this pain in your heart of breaking the heart of God because you sinned. So you repent, you turn to God, you receive his forgiveness, and you do it again. That same pain that you felt the first time, it doesn't feel the same anymore. It's a little bit less. So that you turn to God, you repent, and then you pray, you receive, and then we do it again. You don't feel that pain anymore. And after a while, that becomes a standard, the norm. So repentance, it's not just feeling disgusted about yourself and the things that you do that you don't like. But it's really coming to the point of, I have sinned against this holy God. And there is nothing good in me. There is nothing that I can do. And it's only in Jesus Christ, who is my righteousness. And I'm his works that I stand. Unmerited. Undeserved. Trusting in him for the forgiveness of sins. And so we want to gain this better understanding of repentance today as God shows us his heart and then respond in a way that I believe should be consistent with a person who has experienced God's love. So let me give us the one thing. The one thing that I want to talk about this morning is simply this. As God shows us his intent, so that's his purpose, his desire for you and for me. As God shows us his intent, we must learn how to repent. That as God shows us his intent, that we must learn how to repent. There's two things I'm going to highlight for us in this chapter 3, in these 10 verses. As we remember about learning how to repent, as God shows us his intent and purpose, the first thing is this, that God recommissions us because of his grace. That God recommissions us because of his grace. If you remember in chapter 1 in the book of Jonah, God was setting the stage to fulfill his purpose and his plan. So he was literally giving a window to his intent, what he's intending to do. And so he turns to Jonah, the prophet, and he says, go to Nineveh and go there to proclaim and to share about the evil that's in that city. And instead of obeying God, you notice that Jonah decides to go on a ship and go in the opposite direction, not to Nineveh, but to Tarshish. And you will notice that it's completely in the opposite direction. Then God eventually got Jonah's attention by bringing a storm. And in that storm, and then as he was tossed out, he was swallowed up by a big fish. It says a great fish. And all of chapter 2, when we look at this story then as it continues to progress, we see chapter 2 from last week. It was about a prayer that he lifted up in this dire situation. And it was in this prayer, as he prayed, he remembered who God was. And he remembered what God meant, meant to him and what he means to the Israelite people. I thought it was interesting that chapter 2 ends with this phrase. So chapter 2, verse 10. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. That's how the story ends in chapter 2. Can you imagine what Jonah was feeling and thinking at this moment? I, I want you to try to put yourself in this situation. Well, first of all, some of you are like, you can't be swallowed up by fish and then spit it out. And 
There's a lot of stuff that can't be done. That's why they call it supernatural. But anyway, that's a whole different... We'll talk about that when we're talking about our relation with the laws. We're going to do some apologetics. So it's going to be exciting. So you don't want to miss that. I don't know when it is. August? Yeah. So if you can't be here, check it online. Why is this important? When you think about Jonah and being in the belly of that fish, in this great fish for three days, and then finally being vomited out, and then he enters into dry land. you got to try to picture the grind, the dirtiness, the wetness of just being in the belly of the fish, and now he's on dry ground. He was probably hungry. He was feeling very weak, maybe confused, grateful, definitely, confused. But it is at this moment that God speaks to Jonah a second time. Everyone say, a second time. This is very significant. This is the second time that God speaks to Jonah about his purposes and his calling, which is to go to Nineveh and to proclaim God's judgment so hopefully they will repent and turn and that God could deliver them. Now, I want you to think about this because this is now the second time. God already commissioned him to do that in chapter 1, and he disobeyed. So now as we enter into chapter 3, God is now recommissioning him to do the very thing that God told him to do in the first place. So let's go ahead and reverse it 1 and 2. This is what the Word of God says. Then the Word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Now, Let's pause here and look at this. In verse 2, you see that the message is similar to what was first mentioned in Jonah chapter 1, verse 2. It is as if God is saying to Jonah, here's a second opportunity for you to do the will of God, to do my will. Now, you have to remember that this is the heart of God, that God is the God who gives second opportunities. Can I get a good amen to that? That no matter how much you have failed, no matter what you have done in your life, however you perceive yourself, the thing that you have to understand is that this is the heart of God, which is that God is always the God of second chances or the second opportunities. I mean, it's, it's all throughout the Bible. That's why this gospel message is such good news. I was thinking about what would it be like if every single one of us, we only had one opportunity. Dun, dun, dun. You know, one, one opportunity. That's it. Think about it. Think about it for a moment. You only have one opportunity, and you then you messed it up. One opportunity to pass that class. Some of us might be there. One opportunity to go into that job interview. One opportunity to approach a girl, and she says no. Can you imagine? I'm like, did, did he just say I could keep on approaching her? No, when she says no, that means no. Okay? Some of you guys are just, mm. you, you need to re relearn that. You got to listen to that sermon again on the relationship thing. But think about it all throughout the Bible, second chances, third opportunities, fourth, fifth, God being faithful time and time again, all the way from the Israelites to the time of Judges, how many times God, in his patience, giving them opportunities, opportunities. You know the famous story, even throughout the gospel about Peter denying Jesus three times. How many times did he make some stupid comments and jumped in the water, start sinking, doing some crazy stuff? God constantly giving opportunities after opportunities. And it culminates in John chapter 21, where he says, Peter, do you love me? He goes, you know that I do. And he says, go feed my lamb. Feed my sheep. And the third time it says Peter was saddened to be asked this question again. But Jesus had a purpose because for the three times that he denied Jesus, three times Jesus is restoring Peter. This is the gospel that's laced all throughout the Bible, if you read this, with the gospel lens. That God is a God 
of second opportunities. That God is a God who is constantly recommissioning us into the purpose and the purpose that he has for you and the calling that he has given to you. I know there are people who God has spoken to like years before when they were younger and for whatever reason, because they were hurt, because they were chasing after the things of this world, somehow they got totally blindsided and they feel like they have completely missed out on the very thing that God has planned for them. And it's in that one moment when God speaks to them and recommissions them to do what God was calling them to do for all these years. He hasn't given up on you yet. You might have given up on yourself, but he hasn't given up on you. This is where we have to know the heart of God and turn back to him. Let's continue as we read the story from verse 3 now. I'm going to read verse 3 and 4. It says this. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now the first thing that Jonah does is what? He obeys. <laughs> See, one of the things you need to understand is that like, once you get stuck in the belly of a fish for three days, you're going to want to obey. Because <laughs> you're like... Because I disobeyed the first time and I got stuck here. What will happen if I disobey again? So Jonah's thinking. He's thinking here. So the first thing that he does, he gets up and goes to Nineveh. Now, Jonah is no longer resisting God. But he decided to do what God was calling him to do. Listen to the voice translation of verse 3. I, I thought it was really interesting. It says this. Having learned his lesson, Jonah yielded to the eternal's command and headed on the road to Nineveh. Sometimes life is full of just lessons, things that he wants to teach you. Some of us, we, we fail to learn that lesson, so guess what? We're going to have to learn it again. Like, it's amazing, because some of us think it's going to be exactly the same exam, and it's not. The illustration I give all the time is this. God is testing you in organic chemistry. Now, some of you are like, organic what? Because you, you, you were not into the science. Now, all the UST people are listening up because they were sleeping just a couple seconds ago. Now they're paying attention. <laughs> so think about it this way. You are taking organic chemistry and you failed it. Now, in order for you to take other classes or to finish in your major, you got to pass this class because it's a basic requirement. So what, does, what do you do? You take that course again. And let me ask you this. Do you think that the exam is the same? Now, if it is, that professor is not very smart. Uh, PhD does not stand for doctor, philosophy, what is it? The doctor of philosophy. Anyway, I don't want to even go there. Anyway, acronyms are all over the place. I don't want to confuse you. Just stay focused, all right? So that, that professor is not very smart if he gives the same exam. But he will examine you on that same topic with different questions. Are you with me? So, for instance, if some of you did not pass the exam of trust, especially with the protest, especially with the COVID-19, like, you know what's going to happen? I guarantee you that you're going to have another exam on the topic of what? Everyone say it. Trust. But no longer is it going to be a protest or COVID-19. It's going to be something else. Some of you, he's trying to teach you, stop depending on yourself. Stop being so proud. And so you kind of learned your lesson by maybe a dumb mistake you made and you got humiliated and you're like, oh my God. And then all of a sudden, but still, then you start getting proud again because then you learned something from failure and everyone's praising you because you learned something from, and you're like, yes. So guess what? God will give you another exam to teach you about what? Humility. But it's not going to be on the same thing. It's going to be on some other test with some other factors. Does that make sense? This is what God is doing. That's why I think many of us, we don't grow in that grid that we're talking about because you don't reflect. You don't take the time to think, God, what are you trying to teach me? 
Some of you go from one relationship to another bad relationship to another bad relationship. You don't take time to think. What is it that God is trying to speak to me about? So what happens? He's trying to teach you another lesson through another person who's a different person. But you're still not learning. So here's Jonah. After being in the belly of the fish for three days, he comes out into dry land. God speaks to him. And then what does he do? He arises and he gets up and then he goes to Nineveh. He obeys. Now, I want you to also see here that we see this phrase of Nineveh being a great city. It was mentioned earlier in chapter 1. And it will be mentioned again in chapter 4. But it's mentioned here in chapter 3. Here in verse 3, it says that Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. you got to follow along with This is important to understand this idea of being recommissioned by God's grace. The idea of a great city can be taken in two ways. First of all, it can be a big city, kind of like a great city. It's a big city because it has it's been estimated not only in the Nineveh proper, but in the surrounding areas that scholars have said that there's close to almost a million people back then. So think about it. Like, that's like huge for what they had back then. Now here it's like, it's nothing. I remember, I, you know, I talked to people coming from the mainland China, and I go, oh, where are you from? Oh, I'm from this really small city. So I'll be like, oh, what city is that? And how many people do you, do you have? They'll be like, nine million people. I'm like, that's not a small city. That's huge. Everything is relative. But back then, this was huge, close to a million people. And it says here that it took three days, and we'll see this, it took three days to walk through it. Now, the second, this is the part that I want you to catch. The second way to look at this, that Nineveh was a great city, because if you look at this translation, it also means it also means it was great to God. So think about this for a moment. God is saying to Jonah, or he's saying to Jonah about Nineveh, this city is a great city. It is great to me. It is in the context of significance and the object of loving concern. Nineveh is a great city because it has a lot of people, but it's a great city because it's great to me. I'm concerned about this. I love this city. I love the people there. God's heart for the people in this great city is that they should have an opportunity to repent. Where are we when it comes to our heart for the city? or even for our campus. I really am sometimes disappointed at some of us who are college students and you just come to college so that you can just get a degree and live your life, get a job and live your life. That's very sad to me when I think about that. I'm not gonna call you a pre-Christian. You might probably be on the lower end of the recognized disciple but the reason why it concerns me and it kind of bothers me in a wrong way in some ways is because here is God entrusting you for four years to be on this campus that are filled with lost people and you just don't care. The only thing you care about is yourself and your GPA and the job that you want to get so you can live a comfortable life. No one else is going to love your campus. If you go to CUHK, no one else is going to love that campus. You know why? Because there's so many mountains, it's hard to get up there. No one's going to love your campus. Are you serious? Polly you, who's going to love that campus? Starting fires over a bridge. UST, they might like it because the ocean is right there. HKU, like if we say we're going to start something in Lingnan, how many of you are like, oh. 
You're not. Because you're not there. You don't know the people. You don't know the culture. But here you are on that campus. Every single day you see people passing you by who are lost. They don't know Jesus Christ. They're depressed. They're lonely. And you just don't care. If you're not going to love your campus, no one else will. Surely not from a different campus. No wonder when you don't love the campus, and campus is not, oh, such a beautiful building. It has a lot of multiple colors. Oh, it's kind of together with the periodical table. I don't know. It's like, wow. (laughs) See, if I know more about your campus than you do, you have a problem. It's not you love this campus because of the buildings. You love the campus because of the people. And some of you who have graduated from some of the universities here, and you have no heart to even invest in some of the younger generations, something is wrong. It's all about you. Who else knows the struggles of going through those classes in that campus? No one else but you, because you've been there. You were on that campus. You were once a student. And to see you now as a single adult thinking, oh, yeah, I'm making a lot of money. I'm investing in all these cool things in the future, and then it crashes the next day. And then you're like, oh, wow. It just shows your heart. And that kind of heart that you probably had when you were an undergrad that you hid very well. The people who didn't know you just took it as, oh, this person is doing all this stuff. It means nothing. Same with those of us who are single adults. You're just here to work. It's all about just making money. Some of us don't even understand about the city, the intricacies, and all the different things that are going on from the political level all the way to the demarginalized or marginalized people and the different needs that are in the campus. Because why? Because every single day you go to this building that was built, I don't know, maybe 20 years ago, and you have to wait all these minutes to get up to the top. And it's so easy to think that this is what Hong Kong is when there's a lot of things about the city that we do not know. And here is God saying to us that here is a great city, that not only is it great because it is 7.4 million people, but it's great to me. That is what God is saying. Jonah, Nineveh is a great city to me. Because of the people who are there. It says here literally, it took him three days. And he preaches, and I was thinking about this. Was he like, guys, repent, because in 40 days, the city. No, he's probably going, 40 days, you're going to be overthrown. Do you guys remember what we talked about in chapter one? He didn't want to go to Nineveh because he hated the Ninevites. They were enemies of Israel. That's like literally giving like food to people that actually murdered your family or giving them your apartment after they did something horrible. Like literally it just boggled his mind that God will call him to do something horrendous as this, to go and preach to these Ninevites with the possibility that they may repent and turn. So he's like, yeah, 40 days and you're going to be overthrown. AU, 40 days, overthrown, 40 days, overthrown. He had no conviction. He didn't love the people. But once again, this is the amazing part. Is that when you understand and receive the gospel message, it doesn't matter if it's your enemies or other people have hurt you, you are wanting to love because you yourself, who who was an enemy of God, God loved you. And as you've received reconciliation from God, you want to be reconciled with others. If there's anyone that you hate right now in your life and you cannot forgive, it's a sign that you do not understand the gospel message. I always hear these stories about, oh, this one leader hurt me. And so now because of that, you're just like totally like, I'm going to push away. I mean, I'm going to grow up. 
Because if you think that leader hurt you, there's going to be a bosses who will hurt you. Your spouse, future spouse will hurt you. Your children will hurt you. They will be hurt for the rest of your life. And if you hold on to that grudge, hold on to that bitterness, you're never going to grow. That just shows that you don't understand the gospel. You are an enemy of God. He could have destroyed you. His wrath coming upon you, coming upon me because of our sin. But in his loving ways, he sent his one and only son to die on the cross, to live that perfect life that you could not live, I could not live. But he sent his son to come live that life, die on the cross, resurrect from the dead, so that now we can no longer, we don't have to be enemies of God, but now we're considered friends of God. We're reconciled. That's the gospel, or at least some parts of the gospel. That's why if Jesus can love us while we were enemies, if you experience the gospel, you can love people that have hurt you. I'm not saying condone their behavior, but you can love them in Jesus Christ. Even though Jonah disobeyed the first time, God gave him an opportunity to serve him again. This is what Apostle Paul understood about this grace that enabled him to be used of God. Paul didn't have to be recommissioned. It was that one time when he experienced it powerfully. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 9 through 10. Listen to what it says in the New Living Translation. And the yellow sections, I want you to read it all together in one loud voice together. Listen to what it says. For I am the least of all the apostles. In fact, I am not even worthy to be called an apostle after the way I persecuted God's church. But whenever, but whatever I am now, it is all because God poured out his special favor on me and not without results. For I have worked harder than all the other apostles, yet it was not I, but God who was working through me by his grace. That's why even in verse 10, the end of verse, the beginning of verse 10, listen to how the message translation translates that part. It says, but because God was so gracious, so very generous, here I am. And I'm not about to let this grace go to waste. Some of you have experienced so much grace from God. Second opportunities, third opportunities, forgiveness over and over again, mercy over and over again. And you sit there week after week, still living your own personal life for your own glory. And you're allowing this grace that he has lavished on you to go to waste. When you know the gospel, you've experienced the gospel, you cannot let it go to waste. God, you've, you've sacrificed your son. Jesus, you shed your blood. I don't want that to go to waste. My life is yours. Whatever you want me to do, I'm here. I believe God is recommissioning many of us to do the things that he has called us to do. And it's only by his grace. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it but he's giving us a second chance. I pray that you be sensitive to listen to his voice and to respond. Let me close with the second point. The second point is this, that God not only recommissions us because of his grace, you gotta listen to this carefully, that God relents because of his mercy. There's a difference. And I'll explain a little bit about mercy and grace, why that's a little bit different. That God relents because of his mercy. Let's read verse 5 through 8. This is what the Word of God says. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The Word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and of his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything, let them not feed or drink water, but let man and the beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone who turn from his evil ways and from the violence that is in his hands. Amazing. The thing that happens that as Jonah is preaching this message, probably half-heartedly because he didn't want to preach it because he hated these people. 
is that the people, regardless of the age or position, they believed in the message of Jonah. That it was from a divine place and the divine judgment was upon them. They ended up calling for a fast and put on sackcloth. sackcloth. Simply repentance broke out in the city. Now, in the Bible, the concept of fasting and putting on sackcloth are associated with repentance. That's why we can draw this out from here. It was this outward expression of this inward feeling that they were going through. And so when they put on sackcloth and they put ashes on their forehead and they started fasting, it was a sign of repentance before God. That's why God spoke to the prophet Joel to call the Israelites to repentance by calling a fast and putting on sackcloth. Listen to what it says through the prophet Joel. Joel chapter 1, verse 13 through 15. And I'm reading from the ESV. It says this, Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. Because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God. And call out to the Lord. Alas, for the day. For the day of the Lord is near. And it's as destruction from the Almighty it comes. So once again, because of the judgment that was upon Israel, what was God saying to the prophet Joel? And Joel proclaimed that. He said, we have to put on these sackcloth of ashes, repent, call upon God, get this solemn assembly. And then in verse 6, I, I, I hope you didn't miss it. We see that even the king participated in coming down from his throne, removing his robe and putting on sackcloth and ashes. In verse 8, B, bravo, it says the king of Nineveh, he ordered that there must be changes even in their behavior that they have to turn away from evil and the violence that is before them. So let me just pause here and digress for a moment from the story to highlight this important aspect of repentance. The word repent comes from the biblical or the Bible, which has this idea of to change one's mind. So whenever you hear the word repent in the Bible, it means to change one's mind. Now, it also entails a decision to turn around. Therefore, it has this idea of turning away from sin and returning back to God. So think about it. Repentance is that you are living your life for yourself, and all of a sudden you decide to change your mind. This is not the way I want to live. So that you turn away from the direction you're going and you return back to God. That's what we, some of us, studied in Luke chapter 15 about the prodigal son. He thought that I'm going to live my life and do whatever I want to do. But then when he was in that pig pen and he was sitting there, he started thinking about how his servants, his dad's servants were better off. So he changed his mind. He goes, I will go from here and I will go to my father. So he's making a decision and then he returns back to the father. That is repentance. So once again, it is more than just repentance is more than just feeling bad or sorry for what you have done against God. I, we need to make sure this is clear. But it is a decision that you make to change your mind so that you could return back to God. Some of you who rely so much on your emotions, I'm going to tell you right now, you're, going to, you, you're not going to grow in your walk with God. I'm not saying emotions are bad per se, but I will say some of you, that's your whole spiritual life. It's based on emotion. There are a lot of times you're not going to feel things. That's why true repentance that will help you in your walk with God is a changing of mind and a volition of the will, a decision that you're making to turn away and turn back to God. Now, if the emotions come, that's great. But sometimes the emotion might not be there. That's why one of the best ways to repent is know the truth, the word of God, to help you to change your mind. The Apostle Paul talks about this, the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. We talk about this all the time, but I want you to put it in this context so that you can understand about repentance. He says, godly sorrow will always lead to fruitfulness. There's going to be some fruits that will come when a person genuinely repents. And then there are fruits that come from people who repent or feel sorrow from the worldly sense. And it's clear and it's obvious. 
Listen to what he says and read the yellow sections with me. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 through 11, it says this. For the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. So that's part of the fruits of a person who has genuine sorrow, which is leading to repentance. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow. But worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. Just see what this godly sorrow produced in you. Such earnestness. Now he's going to list some things that should come forth if you're genuinely repentant and you understand. He says what? Such earnestness, such concern to clear yourself, such indignation, such alarm, such longing to see me, such zeal, and such a readiness to punish wrong. You, come on, show that you have done everything necessary to make things right. Those are the fruits that your love for God will be more genuine. There's going to be a greater eagerness. There's going to be more zeal to love people, to obey God. And then it says here that you will do everything necessary to make things right. I love what James Denny said in his book, The Atonement and the Modern Mind. He addresses this, this idea of repentance and this godly sorrow, worldly sorrow. Listen to what he says. He says this, The self-centered regret which a man feels when his sin was found out, found him out, the wish, the compounded uh, pride, shame, and anger at his own inconceivable folly that he had done, had not done it, these are spoken of as repentance. But they are not repentance at all. Let me just pause here. What he's simply saying is that there are times when a sin is exposed and you're like, okay, I repent. But what he's saying is that you're just saying that. You don't really mean it. You don't understand it. Then he goes on and he says this, It is the simple truth that sorrow of heart, that healing and sanctifying pain in which sin is really put away, is not ours in independence of God. It is a saving grace which is begotten in the soul under the impression of sin it owes to the revelation of God in Christ. God is the only one that can help reveal that to you that will lead you to repentance. You cannot sit there and say, I repent, I repent, and try to feel things. The Holy Spirit has to convict you. And then you have to respond to God. That's why it's a volition of the will. It's a decision that you make as God convicts you in your mind. Continue on, it says this. A man can no more repent than he, he can do anything else without a motive. And the motive which makes a, a, a evangelic repentance possible does not enter into his world till he sees God as God makes himself known in the death of Christ. All true pendants are children of the cross. I, lo I love that idea, the children of the cross. Their penance is not their own creation. It is the reaction towards God produced in their souls by this demonstration of what sin is to him and of what his love does to reach and win the sinful. God has to do that in our hearts. God has to convict us, and then we need to respond. Now, we are not going to get this point of genuine repentance unless we understand God's love for us. Can I just, let me, once again, this is so important. The reason why so many of you have a hard time with repentance is because we have a negative view of repentance. Now, why do we have a negative view of repentance? Because it's a negative view of yourself. Why do you have a negative view of yourself? Because it's a negative view of God. So pause here with me for a moment, and let's go the other direction. If you look at God as very vindictive, He, he scolds you, He punishes you, then when you sin, as you look at God that way, then you're going to look at yourself and say, oh, I don't want to admit that I'm wrong. Then you're not going to repent. And by you not repenting, you're not going to grow. I thought it was best said by Thomas Merton. Uh, he wrote a book called, um, I think it's up here, right? Can we, the, it's, it's about no man is a person, an island to himself. And he, he writes this and he says this. He says, the man who is not afraid to admit everything that he sees to be wrong with himself and yet recognizes that he may be the object of God's love precisely because of his shortcoming can begin to be sincere. His sincerity is based on what? Say that word. On confidence. Not in his own illusions about himself, but in the endless unfailing mercy of God. This is good stuff. 
the more you keep on looking at yourself and even with the lens of yourself to look at God, the less you're going to want to repent. But if you see yourself as the object of love, that God loves you, that he wants the best for you, then why wouldn't you want to turn to this God when you sin against him? So once again, the problem with so many of us in our walk with God, the reason why we're still a pre-Christian, the reason why some of us are still at the recognized disciple and you're not growing is because you do not understand the gospel. You still look at yourself. You still look at this world in a human paradigm, in an Eastern mindset to say that my identity and the shame and the guilt, all this stuff, that's how you view God. And that's how you view God is going to deal with you. That's why you hide. That's why you don't want to come forth. That's why you're not going to make these decisions that are hard. But if you understand that you are the object of God's affection, that he loves you no matter what you do, what you have done, then why wouldn't you want to turn to him? Think about some of us. When your parents told you not to do that and you did it, do you want to run to that? Mom, dad, let me just say to you, I did what you told me not to do. Huh? Of course not. Because you understand that they will punish you, that you will be reprimanded, that you will be scolded. That's why ever since you were a young child, you've learned conditional love. And you bring that stuff over to your relationship with God and no wonder the way you relate with your parents is the same way you relate with God that's why you're not growing that's why we keep on saying address those issues from the past with your family with other people because if you don't it's going to affect your relationship with God and it's possible why because when you understand the gospel by his grace, he renews your mind. You change your mind and say, I'm not going to live that way. I want to live according to the cross, what he has done for me. All my sins are nailed to the cross. And that's when you realize that I am the object of God's affection, that he loves me. This grace and this mercy, it is unexplainable. So instead of running away and hiding and not confessing your sins, it's an incredible thing that you can literally go to this God who loves you unconditionally, who has already showed you that he loves you, even before you sinned he showed you that he loves you because look at the cross and so when you look at that cross and you see how much he loves you that you are the object of his affection that you would want to reconcile with God you're going to want to confess your sins before God knowing that you will be loved and received now of course the other extreme is like it's easy grace where you're like okay God loves me anyways so I'm going to keep on sitting oh God sorry to me you don't understand grace then because grace is what costly Every single time you sin, you, you're reminded of the cross, this is why Jesus had to die. And if it doesn't move you, and you continue to sin over and over again, then you're making light of that cross. So we have the two extremes. People who can't approach God because they think God's going to punish them, and those who take God's grace for granted, and they don't understand the cost that's involved. And right in that intersection, is right in the center, is someone who is humbled, by the cross, who is amazed at this grace. And he says, God, I don't deserve anything, but you love me this way. That's why, look at how it closes in verse 9 and 10. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God relented of the disaster that he was he has said he would do to them, and he did not do it. The phrase, who knows, shows that forgiveness and mercy is in God's hands. All we can do is trust and believe. We're not demanding anything from God. He doesn't have to do anything for us. That's why they said, who knows? Even as we repent right now, sackcloth and ashes, who knows? He might still send down his wrath but it is in God's hands. We have to believe that the evidence of God's mercy is present. Listen to me. This is what I want you to catch here. God's evidence of his grace is present in the story 
And I'm going to explain why. And then I want you to take that concept and apply it to your life. God sent Jonah to preach this message. He didn't have to. That's, that's a sign that God is wanting to show mercy to a group of people that were against his people. Even when Jonah ran away, God brought him and sent him again. That's another sign that God is persistent in what he wants to accomplish. Even in Jonah's disobedience, God brought his purpose. And then as he preached half-heartedly, 40 days, you're going to be overthrown. What happened? They heard this message and their hearts were broken. And that's mercy. Listen, something that I always tell people to distinguish between grace and mercy is this. Grace is getting something that you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. Are you with me? I, I put it up here so you can, you can see it. Grace is getting something that you do not deserve. That's like salvation. That's like making to the MTR when the door is about to close. That's grace. You don't deserve that, but you got it. God shows his grace every single day in our lives. He also shows mercy because that's something that you do deserve because you sinned against God, but he doesn't allow you to experience his wrath. That's his mercy, that we don't get what we do deserve. Punishment, destruction, death. So here's God who recommissions Jonah because it's out of God's grace. He didn't deserve it, but he got it. And here's God who relents in destroying the city because they repented. That's his mercy. And it's interesting because this sums up the gospel so very well. In the book of Matthew, Jesus Christ actually uses the story about Jonah and Nineveh to preach about what he was going to do. In fact, Jesus was the better Jonah. Because when Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, it was because out of his disobedience. But when Jesus died on the cross and then rose again on the third day, it was because he obeyed the Father. And this Jesus, that is based the foundation for the gospel message, is in whom we put our full trust. And he is right now proclaiming to you that there's grace and mercy if you would just repent and turn away from your ways and turn to him. And he's opening up his arms as he did on the cross and we visibly see it to come and receive what he has planned for us. That's why as God shows us his intent, his purposes in us, in our lives, that we have to learn how to repent. What are the next steps? What Pastor Bo and I, we decided to do is every single week, we're going to just go over the tools that we've been teaching you until we get it. We can list all these things for you to do, but we're not going to do it. But if you can get these things that we've been teaching you the last two weeks, and you'll do this for the rest of your life. I'm telling you right now, you're going to experience change. The first thing is this. Realize your sinfulness. It's this realization. The best way to realize your sinfulness, I mean, you don't have to go far. Just look in the mirror. Look at your attitude. Look at your thoughts. Look at your actions. Look at your relationship with people. So realize your sinfulness. And own up to it. I am sinful by nature. I have sinned against God. The second thing is repent of things that you worship above God. 
Because every single thing that leads you into sin is just literally you putting something above God. That's why Tim Keller, as we've been quoting a lot, because he talks a lot about idols, he wrote in the book, The Prodigal God. Listen to what he writes. We must learn how to repent of the sin under all our other sins and under all our, unright our righteousness, the sin of seeking to be our own Savior and Lord. We must admit that we put our ultimate hope and trust in things other than God, and that in both our wrongdoing and rightdoing, we have been seeking to get around God or get control of God in order to get him or get a hold of those things. So what he's simply saying is that whether you do good things, like those Pharisees, the self-righteous people that we have in church, and to those people that we sin and we feel like, oh, God will never love me, those two people, the groups of people that describe all of us, and we sometimes oscillate between the two, what he's simply saying is that it is a sign that we just want to be God ourselves. We want to control God. We want to be God. And that's what we got to repent of because there is no other God like our God. He is the only God that we should worship. That's why part of your repentance is that when you see areas of sin, you first got to declare who He is and then run to Him and turn to Him. The third, fourth thing, or third thing is receive the fullness of the gospel. Speak truth to yourself. What does the gospel mean? Lastly, is to recommit to living a gospel-centered life. Because it's not a one-time thing. You've got to keep on recommitting yourself to it. I want to close by showing you a testimony of Blake, this guy named Blake, who, I mean, incredible testimony. Some of us are going to sit there and like, I can't relate to this. But the reason why I'm going to show it to you, because I want you to understand that what he shares, he shares element of the gospel. All throughout his testimony, there's like gospel truth, gospel truth, gospel truth. And one thing that kind of stuck out as watching this testimony is this. Is that once he fully grasped it as best as he could with his finite mind, I want you to see his response. And even though your life is not like his, if the components are there in your life, I believe God could do some amazing things. Because without that repentance and turning to God, we're going to be stuck. We want to respond to him in this way. So let's watch this together and then we'll close out. Thank you for listening to the Harvest Mission Community Church Podcast. For more information, visit our website at hongkong.hmcc.net.